Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm Rebecca Bernard, your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk. In July of 2023, 47-year-old Jennifer Cleveland, a mother of four, died after receiving treatments at a Texas Medispa. We reported on this tragic story in a podcast with plastic surgeon Alina Sholar, and you can find the link to that episode in the show notes. Today, we're discussing the aftermath of this case and efforts by Texas physicians to ensure that no more patients die from wellness treatments. Dr. Mary Kelly Green is an ophthalmologist. She's a founding member of the Texas 400, an advocacy group fighting to protect patients. Dr. Green, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Bernard. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I am mostly from Texas. My dad was a military ophthalmologist. And so we lived in San Antonio, which is sort of in South Texas. And I did go to medical school and residency and undergrad in San Antonio. And then I moved to the beautiful Texas Hill Country. Uh, My town is Marble Falls. And so I bought uh, the ophthalmology practice here in 2000. 12. And so I've owned it, I guess, for 11 years. I really wasn't involved at all in advocacy in any way until about 2017. I kind of, like a lot of doctors, I thought I wouldn't have time. This isn't my job. Someone else should be doing this. And, you know, a group of us didn't have an official group. And we just went down to the state house and I had a breast pump and um, went down there and uh, met with our state rep and kind of walked around the halls. And what we discovered was if we just showed up, even without an appointment, people would have us in. We would say, oh, we're a group of six physicians. We're here. Can we talk to someone that does health policy for Senator so-and-so? And everyone was like, six doctors just showed up. Holy cow. Let's have them in. And nobody said no. And so we realized we were onto something. And we have worked with TMA as well. I have and gone to their legislative advocacy day where hundreds of physicians show up. But the key thing that we learned was that it wasn't just going down here and there. It was developing relationships with the legislators that was going to help us to make headway in the process of making healthcare safer for patients in Texas. So we've been working on that. And I, you know, just kind of got to know all the reps and senators I could. And, you know, that's been very helpful uh, since, since that time. We formed Texas 400 officially in 2021. We had already hired a lobbyist and he told us, he put his foot down. He said, you've got to have a name for your group. I can't just walk around the Capitol saying I work for a rogue band of physicians. You must name it. And so we were like, what are we going to do? And he said, well, how many people are in it? And so at that time, the Facebook group had 400 some odd. And he said, let's call it Texas 400. And we were like, okie doke. And so now we have more than that, but that's the name just stuck. And so he, um, he loves telling that story too. We told the group, our Facebook group that we, four of us had already pledged to hire a lobbyist. We knew how much it was for the session. We split it by four. We all agreed to do it and we had it funded. And we told our Facebook group, Hey, we're doing this. We have a lobbyist. We're going to get serious. We're going to, you know, go down there. And someone that I, I don't even remember who it was. Somebody said, we need to help you. We need to donate. And we said, no, it's okay. We got it. We have, you know, and the same woman said, why don't you just put your Venmo on, on this post? And so I put the little picture of my Venmo on the post and my phone almost vibrated off the counter all day. It was vibrating off the kitchen counter. And I, I looked at it 
And in 36 hours, we got $29,000. And so- Wow, was that from physicians, patients, the public? Physicians. From physicians. physicians. Wow. And so, and I told that story to our National American Academy of of Ophthalmology leader, Dr. McLeod, who's in San Francisco. I've met with him a couple of times to talk about advocacy. And I told him that story and looked at me and he goes, well, why do you think they gave you that money just to you, just to Kelly Green? And I said, I have no idea, but I think it's because they knew I was going to do what I said was I I was going to do with it. You know, I wasn't going to go and get a new purse. They know I was in Peace Corps, you know, I'm not going to steal money that I was that kind of person, I guess. And they just Venmoed it to me. And I, I I started on a notebook, spiral notebook. I started writing down who it was all from and making this ledger on a notebook because I never imagined to have to need a spreadsheet <laughs> for that. So that was the beginning of Texas 400. And then we had a, a boot camp prior to the 2023 legislative session in Texas, because it happens every two years officially. And so at that meeting, we actually wrote legislation and we proposed and had um, 12 unique bills, 14 total bills filed in Texas in 2023. And one of them actually got all the way almost to the finish line and then was caught up in the House versus Senate arguments. So that was our best session. It was only our second session where we even barely tried. And um, so we're looking forward to 2025 for sure. Cause I think, you know, to it's good and bad. Now the um, potential opponents know our cards, right? Because they've, they can see the bills, but we'll have some new ones. And um, you know, in the past there have been very, very few kind of pro physician patient bills that have been proposed by any organization in the country and Texas Medical Association has 55,000 members, but yet writes no legislation to my, you know, my observation that would address the issue in a proactive way. And instead we sit and wait and see what sort of terrible scope legislation is going to come up and then have to fight it like, like whack-a-mole. And so you want proactive legislation that supports patient safety, a physician practice, and also, you'd like to, for the opponents to have something to work on over there, right? Like, hey, um, you know, we're over here beating the whack-a-moles down and you're over there just resting and, and waiting for your bills to pass. But now opponents may have, you know, realized that they're going to have to also work against us if they, if they want to, uh, to maintain their position. I think that is such an important philosophy because it does feel like we're always playing defensive. And so it's really nice to be more proactive. And just like you said, not only promoting positive bills, but also taking some of the, making them put some of their resources into playing defense for once. So mm-hmm. I really love that. And and I'm hearing from other states, Mississippi and Louisiana, where their doctors, just like you guys in Texas, have decided to take matters into your own hands and really hire lobbyists and get more proactive. And it's really exciting to see that that's paying off. So right now, what you guys are really working on is some some of the issues surrounding Medi spas. And th- this really came to a head recently over the death of Jennifer Cleveland. So can you tell our audience a little bit about that situation? It was terrible. So she actually went to a med spa that was run by her friends. She was friends with Amber Johnson, who was a non-medical lay person who decided to open a spa. Um, the spa did have a medical director, an absent medical director. He had been there, I believe, a total of three times ever. And his name was in the window. And so I've had people ask me, hey, can you come and 
work with me in some fashion. And I couldn't really figure out why it would benefit them. And one of these people finally said to me, I want to put your name on my sign. And I was like, what? This is my name. I don't want my name on your sign so I can legitimize whatever it is you want to do. But that's how this place was run. There was a name of a physician in the window, which definitely legitimizes it for a, a casual passerby and makes it seem like a place where medical things are happening under the direction of a physician. And it appears that was not happening. So she went in, an IV was placed um, in a peripheral vein, I'm assuming, and she was given TPN electrolytes. I assume she ordered it um, under the medical license of Dr. Michael Patrick Gallagher, who's a fellowship trained cardiothoracic anesthesiologist who trained in Dallas and was licensed and working in Frisco. So he had to give his medical license to her to get this substance. You can't order this substance just to your house. That's that's our the power you know that we have as doctors is that we can access medical goods, other equipment like lasers and things like that that can only be sold to doctors legally. And so she got this TPN electrolytes, which included potassium. And so the understanding that I've gleaned from reading the medical board's um, comments was that the, her death was potentially linked to the potassium, which is what is used in lethal injection. Patients don't know because they don't know what TPN is. Like if you haven't gone to medical school, you don't know what TPN is. When you're an intern, you have to write TPN orders and it's the hardest part of your whole day. You know, you sit there with your calculator and you make the pharmacist check because the formula has to be perfect. You don't want to hurt somebody. I had to do TPN for children when I was on peds. And that was like, I, I remember where I was sitting. I remember the desk. It was such a grave task to write a TPN order. And this woman was given TPN just some random concoction. And she also was given it in a peripheral vein, which you cannot do because it's very caustic to the veins. You put it through a central line. It's always placed through a central line. I've spoken with a medical examiner unrelated to the case directly who said that it is very difficult to say that a person died from potassium because the potassium extrudes from the cells very quickly after death. And so you get a you know, just this, this flood of potassium into the tissues. And so it's very hard to prove that she didn't have other serious medical problems. I did see the toxicology, like a screenshot of the toxicology findings, and there was nothing outrageous there to cause her death. She had mild cardiomegaly, as you said, um, on autopsy, but that didn't seem like that would be something that would cause someone to die. I mean, probably half of everybody out there with hypertension has mild cardiomegaly if you looked. So that seems just not compatible with sudden death. So she died. And my understanding is that Dr. Gallagher did appear that day. I don't know at what point there at the med spa. And then he subsequently lost uh, his license temporarily uh, to practice medicine. My understanding is that he was supervising or delegating to I've been told 75 places. I haven't seen independent confirmation of that. So that certainly is, is reasonable to assume he was supervising or delegating to a bunch of places because he wasn't actually working. It's unbelievable that a doctor would not supervise or delegate. It's unbelievable to me <laughs> that a doctor would not supervise and delegate appropriately, but it's obviously happening. And it's happening more than we think. I looked at a med spa website for a place in town. That's actually a lovely lady who does makeup and stuff. But then I guess she decided to do face lasers all of a sudden. And the doctor who is supervising her doesn't go there. 
is someone that I know. And so we talked about it, my friend and I, and I said, I don't know if you know what's happening there. And that's the concern. If you rent out your license for a thousand bucks a month or whatever, tiny, relatively amount of money that people are going to pay you, they can order TPN and they can give it to people and you won't even know what's happening. And then patients can die. Face lasers can scar you. It's just a laser. I mean, it can scar your face. I mean, that's Yeah, you can get burns, serious burns. That's like the number one malpractice issue with lasers Mm -hmm. and scarring. Mm -hmm. It's no joke. I mean, there's a reason why there is a requirement for physician involvement. So Mm -hmm. I guess, number one, some doctors, like in this case of Gallagher, are -hmm. doing the wrong thing. And then maybe people like your friend maybe just don't know and need to be educated. I think that it's a process of educating physicians, and I do that. And any chance I get, obviously, with friends, colleagues on, you know, social media and stuff like that, there's um, a plastic surgeon, Beverly Hills, also named Kelly, who is very into this on Instagram and TikTok and stuff. And so she and I actually connected because she she posted about the story. Um, her, her name's Kelly Colleen. She posted about the story of Jennifer. And I just called her office in Beverly Hills one day and she called me back. And so now we're kind of teaming up uh, a little bit. So it is, it's definitely a target for legislation and rulemaking though. I mean, I feel like being medical director of a place is a job. I've done it. So I've been medical director for a surgery center and I go to the surgery center that I'm the medical director of regularly. I go every week. I go multiple times a week. They call me if there's a physician who's not doing their paperwork or whatever, I got to call him and say, do your paperwork. There's safety committee meetings. There's quarterly meetings about infection control. There's actual things you do. It's not just, oh, I got a paycheck this month for doing nothing. And you need to be physically there so that you can inspect the place and make sure it's looking like it's going the right way. So maybe there could be a, a law that says doctors can only be medical directors of three places. And they all three places have to be within, you know, 10 miles of your primary practice. And 10 is restrictive, I know, but in a big city, it could be farther away. But, you know, some sort of distance restriction and number of places, and also an attestation on my medical license renewal. Yes, I attest that I'm still supervising these three places. Here are the names and addresses. And those names and addresses of those places would be on my profile. So that people, the public can look and see, oh, Dr. Green is supervising an orthopedics clinic. That's weird. That seems shady. You know, like they should be able to see if I look shady. The state of Texas does not like to restrict businesses or professionals a lot. And I understand that they don't want to tell us what to do all the time and be up in our biz because libertarianism. And I approve of that generally. Um, But when it comes to patient harm and death, I think the state certainly is well, you know, able to step in and and make some limitations so that patients can be safer. There should be transparency. That's another huge thing that we worked on last session. If the state tells me I got to wear a name tag in my own office, fine. That is fine with me. I will wear a name tag. I got my diplomas up on the wall in every room. They're up. Everything, residency, medical school. I put my high school diploma up there. People dig that one. It legitimizes you. And I think that's very reasonable to require. Patients should have been able to say, hey, Amber Johnson here at the med spa, what is your training? What are you trained in? And the answer would have been nothing. I mean, there's this, is it med spa live, my spa live? I think it's my spa live that offers training for anybody apparently to learn how to do 
things, aesthetic things to patients, and then also helps them find a faux medical director. Lovely. So that is obviously something that's hard to correct that little piece of it. I don't know how to correct that, but if Texas could at least require that I place on my medical board profile, every place that I'm delegating and supervising to, that would be a start. And then maybe people would restrict their behavior. I guess the other component is the false advertising, because if you look at these infusion centers and wellness places, you see all these promises that these infusions will do all these things. And there's no evidence that to support any of their claims, is there Mm -hmm. some role for legislation, do you think, to kind of rein that in? That's a hard one. Um, And some of those places are run by physicians, honestly, and it's very surprising to me. Um, One of my favorites is an ad that plays at my gym for this place where you can go and get an infusion. And um, the bag, the picture of the infusion bag has like kiwi fruit cut up in it and like strawberries. And I'm like, well, just eat the kiwi fruit. You don't need that in your IV. That's nuts. And I tell people we give IVs when people are too sick to eat. If you're too sick to eat and you're vomiting copiously, or if your intestines have been taken out and put in the trash can, then you need things in your IV. If you can eat food, it's actually better for you and your body can absorb the nutrients better if they're absorbed enterally or through your guts. And so you don't need an IV. And I mean, if you need an IV because you drink too much, don't, don't maybe don't drink so much. I mean, you'll save some money. You won't feel bad. And then you won't have to go get an IV from some random person who drove up in a van to give you IVs. Whoa. But people like quick fixes. You know, people like oh, I feel bad. I'll go let this random person who's not a nurse or a doctor or anything, give me an IV for $125. And doctors, unfortunately, are seeing it as a way to make money. They're seeing it as, well, everybody else is doing it. At least we can do it safely. And I guess that's true, but it is sort of disingenuous from the patient perspective. They think they trust us. They think that we've done some kind of research where we have some kind of evidence. You know, I have patients all the time that I talk to about their eye surgery and I'm like, okay, let's talk about what kind of lens you want inside your eye when the cataract comes out. And they're like, you just put whatever lens you think. I trust you. And I'm like, okay, but we still need to talk about it so you understand it. So patients just really trust us. And so if we betray that trust by telling them, oh, you get this IV, it's going to help you in some way and you charge them money for it, then that's definitely unethical. But I don't know what like legislation you would do for that. Well, I think this is really an important part of our advocacy work as physicians, because of course, one of my passions is scope of practice and ensuring that patients have access to physician-led care. And sometimes people will say, well, what about bad doctors? And usually I say, well, yes, of course. And that's something we're, we're concerned about. And doctors make mistakes with all this education and training, then of course, how much more may a non-physician but I think that they do have a point in that we must hold our own accountable and responsible and we have to have integrity. And just like people gave you all that donation money because they knew that you had integrity and that you're fighting for what's best for patients. And I also think it's an important point because we often hear that this is about a turf war. And I think it's important to note that you are an ophthalmologist. So you're fighting this battle regarding wellness. And that's not something that you are trying to do or you're making money off of in any way. It's really about patient safety. It is. And I, when, when patients or other individuals tell me that same thing about bad doctors, I tell them an unfortunate story that I had to 
go through, there was a doctor near me that was not providing standard of care to patients. And after the fourth patient came in, because, you know, you see something and you're like, you know, nobody's perfect, right? I'm not perfect. I'm not Some of my patients have troubles after surgery. It's true. It's not possible to be perfect. But after the fourth patient came and she looked at me after I looked at her eye and she narrowed her eyes and she said, you've seen this before, haven't you? And I was like, yes, I have. And so she reported him to the medical board and I called the medical board and talked to one of their attorneys. who's a really great guy. And I said, I've I've got a case series for this doctor. Can I submit it? And he said, yes. So I had to submit their names and all that stuff is confidential, of course, at the medical board level. And then I asked to be anonymous. And at a certain point, they asked me to remove anonymity. And so I did. And then at a certain point, they said, well, this is going to a hearing in person. Will you come and speak? So I already reviewed the medical board rules in Texas, which actually require a doctor to report other doctors who are not meeting standard of care. It's not optional. So doctors don't know that. And also we, we just don't like to do nasty things. We're kind of fastidious, especially ophthalmologists, kind of fussy. And uh, we don't like to do dirty things like politics or reporting other doctors. And I tried everything before I did report. I called his peer review committee at his hospital. I called the greater institution that employs him and talked to someone there. I tried so many different pathways to avoid a medical board report because it seemed like the nuclear option. I spoke to 11 mentors in ophthalmology, one of whom is a professional medical ethicist ophthalmologist. I really had no other choice at that point but to report. And I actually did get down to the medical board and I spoke and it was extremely stressful. And I collapsed in the hallway, frankly, afterwards. And the, the legal assistant came out there and helped me. I said, I don't think they believed me. And she said, no, they asked you so many questions they believed you. And so he did receive a sanction from the medical board. And then there was another sanction later with a different case, especially when physicians say, oh, I don't want to report another physician. I tell them it's actually not optional. You have to do it. And they asked me to report. I'm like, I don't have the information. That process of reporting was miserable, absolutely miserable. And I hated doing it. I hope never to have to do it again. But I tell people, you, you, you need to do this. You know, it's not going to kill you. I'm not dead. I'm here. And, you know, it was miserable, but it now allows me to be able to say to other doctors, I did it. I've actually done it. I've done the whole process. You know, they said, you can phone in that, that, in that last, you know, that committee, you can phone it in, you can send a written testimony. And my husband, who's a retired police detective was like, you can't phone it in. You're no better than his. If you phone it in, you got to go down there. And I was like, okay, but it, it was, it's good that it happens because it does allow me to honestly tell other doctors that I've done it and that they can do it. It's not going to kill them. That must have been so stressful. Like I'm just imagining something like that. And I I probably would just, I, I, you want to say that you would do it and you would go through all that. But the truth is that sounds like it was incredibly difficult and it took a lot. But like you said, it is, it's our integrity, it's our responsibility. And ultimately we're really here to protect our patients. So when mm-hmm. we see something like that, it, it's, it's our obligation. And the patients think that we're doing it, right? Like this lady who looked at me and she said, you've seen this before. I was like, I think maybe if I had done something earlier, she wouldn't have had that happen to her. And so I felt kind of bad. Um, Right. But you also don't want to assume when you see, you know, one post-operative something or other from the doctor. It could just be a fluke. 
or it was a tough case. Sometimes you're operating and things go very strangely. And so you don't want to assume when you see one, you know, strange outcome that this is is, terrible overall. But after four, you know, you you do start to, to see a pattern. I do think about your story and what you went through. And I think about when Dr. Amy Townsend went through great efforts to report a nurse practitioner who ultimately ended up being sanctioned for responsibility in the deaths of patients for overtreatment with testosterone and thyroid. And it sounds like your experience might have not been as challenging as hers in the sense of sounds like the medical board was pretty responsive. She, I mean, I'll link to the podcast episode with her, but the links that she had to go through to just get anyone at the nursing board to take action was just unbelievable. Would you say that your experience, it was relatively straightforward? It was. I've talked to Amy about that. She's my Texas pal. And um, the medical board has a very straightforward mechanism for reporting. It's right there on their website. You know, you don't have to look for it very hard. I think when it comes to uh, actions by the medical board, probably the other thing is that, you know, you hope that maybe if a doctor is doing something, you know, incorrectly, that maybe there's an opportunity for remediation, there's an opportunity for education, if it's not egregious, if it's maybe an ignorance, I mean, not that that's an excuse, but, you know, I I don't want to see doctors not be able to practice unless they really are, you know, a danger. But if they need it, they do need to maybe get education or training or realize that they need to revise their protocols. There is the medical board punishments come out every month. We get a bulletin and that lists all the doctors who got sanctioned that month. And there are, there are um, remediation, you know, plans that are given to doctors that have go to this ethics training or go to this record keeping training, or you're not allowed to prescribe opiates ever again, type of thing that, you know, you can just restrict the practice to make it safer for the public. So there is remediation for some things, you know, for, for someone who is disingenuous in the medical record, I don't know how to fix that. That's a bad one. And it is also very difficult to relearn how to do surgery. And so if those things are problems, I don't know how to fix that. There's just some deal breakers or, you know, like I've been just so disappointed with all these reports across the country of um, uh, sexual misbehaviors by, Mm -hmm. I I think all men physicians, because I haven't seen any, I'm not saying women couldn't do that, but um, it's really hard to defend doctors and be a physician advocate when I see this amount of misbehavior. And I'm really worried about it, Kelly. I mean, what do you, what can be done or what should be done to clean up our act as an as a as a group? That's a good question. I actually had someone that I went to college with who was an orthopedic surgeon in North Texas. So he had been repeatedly sexually assaulting patients in his office and just awful things. And he went to prison. Patients need to know, I don't know how to get the word out. If you see something, if something is wrong, tell someone, like, don't assume that it was a mistake. Oh, his hand just slipped. I mean, what? No, no, but patients are embarrassed. I don't know how to clean up. Yeah, our I act. don't know if we need to like have stronger ethics, um, coursework, mm-hmm. or I, I don't, I'm not one for like trying to remediate people. And as far as like making them take mandatory CMEs or things like that, but I kind of feel like you got to have that, that foundation and you got to get grounded in that. And Maybe we're just not taking our ethical responsibilities to heart. That's a hard question. It sounds like it may start in medical school or residency. 
I mean, I, when I think back to residency, I don't remember, and I'm sure we did it, you know, I'm sure it was part of our competencies, but I don't remember a lot of like ethics lectures. And we had an ethicist at my school who was an yeah, I remember in med school ethics. At that point, you're also, you can't really incorporate it into your practice. You're just learning foundations. And yes, we should learn that, but maybe there does need to be some more of that in residency once you're actually practicing in more applicable ethics mm-hmm. and behavior. I agree. I mean, there's in, in ophthalmology, there's a, there's a practice called co-management where an optometrist sends me a patient for surgery and then I send the patient back and I never see the patient after surgery. I don't do that. It is allowed by our academy and there are specific guidelines that the academy has. They're written out and you can read them, the guidelines for co-management. But I can tell you the way it's actually happening isn't that way. And so the guidelines are there, but unless somebody reports a doctor to the American Academy of Ophthalmology and they sanction that doctor publicly, nothing's going to change. And nobody's like going to go report somebody for that stuff. Cause then they'll just be, Oh, well, he's just reporting me because I'm his competitor. And he wants right. Money. The question is how do we hold ourselves as a profession to that higher standard? That's, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a very big question and, and needs to be probably a bigger discussion, especially as we look at these infusion centers, wellness bars, I would argue the medical marijuana industry, uh, there's a lot of stuff being promoted by physicians that, you know, it's it's a little sketchy. It's a little questionable. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that's hard to talk about, but I think it needs to happen. I agree. Thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Kelly Green. If you've enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare and the follow-up book, Imposter Doctors. And of course, if you're a physician, we would love for you to join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. You can learn more at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.